Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Listeners, Adrian here from Arcade Attack, and on today's show, I interview Dave Perry. Now, he is probably best known for his time on Games Master. He worked on Games World and at so many different publications and magazines. He's also about to embark on a brand new retro gaming show called Games Animal TV. So, guys, sit back and enjoy a really detailed and very interesting and truthful interview. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the Arcade Attack podcast. It really is a pleasure. Growing up, you were part of my childhood, watching Games Master, Games World. You, you, you know, you proper uh, big name in my eyes, and, and you've obviously been on Arcade Attack before for, with a text interview. But actually, talking to you is a real honour. So, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for asking. My, my pleasure, honestly. Um, I'd like to, I've, I've kind of spread my questions out into different sections, um, looking at your magazines your TV, some, some general questions as well, and, and, and some really exciting news about Games Animal. Uh, I appreciate some of these might overlap a little bit, but I'll try to get a bit of a structure. Is that okay, Dave? We'll start, we'll start right from the beginning, though. Is that all right? All right. You just wander around as you want, and I'll um, intersperse when, when you need me. Appreciate it. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you're quite a big Amiga fan, just like me, actually. While growing up, Amiga was probably my favourite sort of games sort of computer. Um why Why for you personally did you like the Amiga so much? Is there a particular reason why you, you, you were, were a massive fan and how would you reflect back on this amazing machine? For me, uh, the Amiga was, um, that was my career machine. That was the machine that really kicked me off, you know. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, well, at school, we, we'd been specky, we'd been C64 and all that kind of thing. And, um, the Atari had come along with the cartridges and that. And, um, obviously I remember the first space invader machines coming in, the asteroid machines, you know, we played all of that. But, um, I then went away to art school. Yeah. Um, at art school, uh, desktop publishing was becoming the big thing. You know, we, we, up until then we'd had to learn to hand letter and everything, mm-hmm. uh, and learn to measure in points and pikers. Um, and then desktop publishing came in and I remembered I needed to, uh, uh, I remember thinking I need to get something. I need to get a computer that will do this for me. Um, so that I can be on at the vanguard of this. I could be, you know, on the front end of this, this, this revolution that's happening yeah. in magazines and so on. And, um, I had, we had the old Macintosh SEs and, uh, I had a friend who, in a nightclub I worked in, he was on the door, and he had a computer company, and I said to him, look, I need to get a Macintosh. And um, he said, uh, well, he's, the way forward is the Amiga. He said, Commodore have got this new machine coming out called an Amiga. Um, he said, they've got some great desktop publishing programs for it. Um, you know, that's the way you need to go. That's going to take over from the Macintosh, the Apple. Yeah. So, um, so obviously, uh, 
I went that route because it was oh, yeah, way cheaper than, than the apples at the time. And um, it was shit. Uh, the Amiga <laughs> was desktop publishing. Terrible, terrible machine. Yeah. But came with video games. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I, I fell back to my inner child and started playing video games again um, and uh, absolutely loved it. And because of that, um, it was kind of like it was that was the transitional machine, if you like. I, I played games a lot as a youngster. I'd then gone to art school and become very arty. Mm. Uh, and I'd come back through the Amiga, back into playing games again. And that was when that was when the fire lit. That was when I because because back then there was no Internet. There was, um, you know, no TV shows, obviously, until we did them. Um, and, um, mm. you know, if you wanted to get video games, um, yeah, conveniently and a nice selection and variety of them, you either had to have a really good shop in your town, which was probably unlikely mm. uh, because still a very fringe thing. Or you joined a mail order club. Mm. And so mail order clubs and started getting games uh, at discount prices. Um, and then I got the subscriber magazines that came with my mail order subscription. Um, and at that point, I decided I could do the magazines better than the guys that were doing them. Mm. So I wrote to them and told them. They invited me in and I got into magazines. So the, the, the Amiga was the machine that did all of that for me, just from my fascination for it. And... At that period, I think the Amiga marked the moment that video games um, started to actually live up to how you wanted them to be. You know, on, yeah. on, on the other machines, everything was a little bit pixelated, a little bit glitchy, a little bit codey. You know, you could you could count how many levels there was going to be. You knew when things were going to turn left and turn right. Suddenly, on the Amiga. Um, worlds opened up you know there, there was way more infinite um opportunity within the games the graphics were better things were faster and it was way more social and um games like you know early games like dungeon master mm. draken kickoff series games like that just brilliant brilliant games and um and because of that i never fell out of love with it yeah. never fell out still my favorite machine today and some of those games still in that era when people were producing for the Amiga and, and the Atari ST, of course, came along and that was its, its, uh, back in those days, there was always a good and bad. There was always one or the other. You had to be on one side or the other. It was it's two true. machines. Yeah. And, um, so the guys that would start developing for those machines were the most creative guys from any era in video gaming. Cause this was, this was the era of the geniuses in their bedrooms and the stuff they came up with was fascinating it was fresh and it shocked us continually and um we knew we were part of something yeah and it was the you felt part of something you didn't just feel like a nerd learning to code <laughs> incredible so you wow yeah i mean you, you went to art oh. school yeah you went to art school you obviously appreciate the amiga did you ever think ever think crossed your mind of actually designing getting to the art graphic side of of amiga games or any video games that ever crossed your mind at all no, never at all. Oh, really? Um, I'll tell you why. Um, because uh, when we were at school and there was a computer club and you stay behind at night and, you know, the old uh, rubber keypads, you know, machines and everything and you're doing all that. I remember sitting there for hours with friends and I remember coding and you'd spend like two, two and a half hours and at the end of putting in all that code, 
or you get with your name repeated 20 times across the screen and things like that. And I just thought, this is too much work for too little reward. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't know that people were going to become billionaires off doing it. But it wasn't my thing. I, um, I never wanted to be the nuts and bolts guy. Yeah. Um, I, that, that's not me. I'm more... Um, I, I'm more pizzazz. I'm more flash. I, 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 that wasn't for me. I wanted something a little more instant. I understand. I understand. Um, really quickly on the Amiga still, have you got any, have you got a top three list of games and maybe list a few games that you think were maybe a little bit overrated on the Amiga? Is there any games you think, well, because obviously you know your stuff when it comes to reviewing games. Have you got any personal favourites and ones that maybe didn't excite well, you as much? My favourite game of all time is an Amiga game. Mm. Uh, Player Manager by Anko. That's a great uh, game. Love that game. Love the whole Anko series, yeah, the kickoff games. Um, up until um, Dino Dini and Steve Screech had, had a little set to or whatever happened there, and they went their separate ways. Um, the, 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 the Anko games were absolutely stunning. And um, I used to love Kickoff 2. I used to love the um, expansion discs you used to get with it. Mm-hmm. And then once you worked out that through Player Manager, you could then take the team you devised in Player Manager and then put them into kickoff in the expansion discs and play as the team you were built. It was just amazing. It, the, the football management games hadn't reached that level before. And um, and it was just infinitely playable. And to this day, um, that's that's the one game I would play above all others, retro games. You know, nice. kickoff and player manager. Love those games. How many hours do you think you put into those two games, do you reckon? <laughs> Constant. Uh, absolutely <laughs> yeah. nothing. Uh, my, my first all-nighter was player manager. It's, I remember playing that, yeah. I remember playing first time sitting down and playing a game and playing and playing and wanting to, you know, another season, another season, another season. And I remember exactly the moment I noticed uh, the sun was coming through uh, the window of my lodgings in London yeah. and at uh, 28 in the morning. And I thought, shit. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea I'd been up all night playing it because I was just so engrossed. I just loved that game. Yeah. Ah, brilliant. I mean, how about Sensible Soccer? I mean, that's a little bit further on. Are you, are you a fan of that series as well? John Hare yeah. um, and myself are, are pretty good friends. We talk fairly regularly um, over um, social media and that. And um, he's kindly offered to come and do something for me um, for the Games Animal TV thing oh, at exactly. some point. We've talked about maybe um, getting together and him teaching me um, how to play Sensible Soccer mm. uh, really well, you know, give me some inside secrets because Sensible Soccer, as much as I liked it, I was an Amiga man. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, uh, not an Amiga man, sorry, a kickoff man. Yeah. Kickoff was probably one of the most realistic football simulations ever made. The ball didn't stick to the guy's feet. You had to dribble. There was inertia in the balls. It would, it would move away from you. If you turned too quickly without control of the ball, you'd lose the ball. You pull back on your joystick to raise the ball just like you would lift your head. You know, uh, in playing proper football, it was amazing. Sensible soccer, um, the ball stuck to the little guy's feet. You know, you got those ridiculous big curves. Everything was like was disproportionate and the angle was strange. And it was a great game and I enjoyed it and it was good fun. Um, but I was too far down the kickoff route. I couldn't um, yeah. I couldn't connect with Sensible. I played it as much as I needed to play it um, to uh, interact with my peers and play against other people. And of course, around that time, I was driving and flying all over the country and um, playing in challenges, so I had to be able to play these games. Of course, yeah. But, it was it was kickoff was my game, not not sensible. Um, uh, even though if you play sensible world of soccer, I, I'm actually in one of the teams. Oh, really? 
Wow. That is, that is pretty <laughs> impressive. Um, how about the most... Because oh, I really appreciate your respect your opinion on games. What do you think is the most overrated game on the Amiga? Is there a game you never really actually enjoyed? On the Amiga, there was probably shitloads of them. Um, I'm trying to think. Was Zool an Amiga game? Yeah, it was. Zool. Yeah, it was. Okay. First in the Amiga, I believe. Fucking awful. Um, <laughs> and... Um, uh, and I think other games, some of the early flagship games, um, were, were very, things like Altered Beast, uh, Shadow of the Beast. Oh, sorry, Shadow, Shadow of the Beast, of the, yeah. the console, wasn't it? Uh, Shadow of the Beast and games like that. Um, some of the Psygnosis games, um, early doors that, that used to come out. And uh, they were wonderful packages. Psygnosis used to always put these games in these huge long cardboard boxes and you mm. got a free t-shirt, um, with them that had been designed specially. And it was, it was always a wonderful package. But the games always looked great, but were a little bit of a letdown. So mm. some, some of those games were a bit poor. I'm sure there's many more worthy than those. But there was there were a lot of games that I remember looked great, but it was just too hard to get past the first few levels. Yeah, uh, I was a big Bitmap Brothers fan, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. as all of as were um, uh, Magic Pockets. Yeah, um, was the only game of theirs that um, that I felt disappointed with. You know, to this day. I love Gods. I'll play Gods whenever. I love Chaos Engine, Speedball. Those games, amazing games. Magic Pockets, not quite. Yeah. Not the worst worst games in Magic Pockets, but that's a game I remember being disappointed with only because of the pedigree of the previous games. Mm. Yeah, Bill and Brothers were legendary. I totally agree. Uh, I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Um, your magazines, I'm really interested to hear about how, how did you first get the opportunity to... Uh, you said you wrote the letter... To, to to get into the magazine industry, were you expecting much? And uh, what was what was the first magazine you ever worked at? Well, the first place I worked at for magazines was um, it was a uh, an importer called Special Reserve. Yeah, they were part Mediates Group, and um, they initially had a um, role playing club um, with a magazine called Confidential, and Confidential was produced. Uh, the front of the magazine was made to look like um, like a special detective's sort of file cover. It was, it was like brown, and I think it had a coffee cup stain on it and everything, and had confidential stamped across it. And the idea was it was role-playing, and these were all the secrets of the games, and, and this was all like you know the inside stuff from the industry. And um, that was the magazine I got, because I was interested in role-playing games early doors. Yeah. Um, and I joined the club because um, they you got a free game by... Uh, magnetic scrolls, mm. uh, which I think might and might have been porn, the porn or something like that. But <laughs> magnetic scrolls did a lot of these text adventures, um, and then um, I got a, as part of my signing up, you got you got to choose a free game you wanted as well. And I wanted Draken, yeah. um, so um, I got Draken as well. And then I got the Confidential magazine, and it was quite interesting to me because, like I say, I, we're talking about eighty eight around 1988 around here and hmm. and no internet there was no way to get this information other than magazines everything was quite embryonic and um it, anything I, anything i'd get my hands on with information was great and, and, and being part of this little club felt great hmm. um but i felt i could do it i read it i saw it i looked at it and i thought i can do that you know do i have to have a special qualification to do it do i need i don't know so, so i wrote yeah yeah, I wrote off to them, and um, at the time, um, I was living in a bus, um, uh, a, bo- a boss of mine, 
um, who had a design business, had taken an, an old Devon General um, public bus and converted it, and there were sleeping quarters in it, and we had computers and a uh, petrol generator at the back, and we were travelling with um, fairgrounds and carnivals and festivals, and we'd pull up in our bus, and we'd stick the generator on and up by the computers up, and I'd sit there all day making signs and business cards and that for, for fairground and festival people and that kind of thing. And um, we travelled all over the country in this bus, and then um, one day when we were going through London, I just asked if I could jump off, and I jumped off the bus and went and um, had my interview in uh, Sawbridgeworth, mm. um, just outside of Harlow, Essex, and uh, the Special Reserve, and, and, and got the gig. And then a few weeks later, packed up my little mini clubman with everything I owned and um, drove up the road via a Prince concert. And um, the next day, I, I, ch- I checked in at Special Reserve, and, and, I, and I started writing and working on the magazines and everything. I think I spent the first night sleeping in my mini because... I didn't know it there, but you know, you've got to do these things if you want to get on. Sometimes you've just got to take a chance. Well done. I mean, I mean, it must be amazing now, reflecting back at that time, that the gamble you took and looking back now, it's a huge, huge part of your career, wasn't it? Absolutely amazing. I guess so, yeah. I guess so. It was, it was right place, right time, and it felt right to do it. Um, but so much of my life and my career, um, especially in the early days, um, was based on taking gambles and making jumps um, and, and, and gut instinct. Um, you know, I have a daughter now, you know, she's going to university and things like this and, and everything's very planned and meticulous and people are very careful about how they plan their lives and that. And she comes to me for advice and, and, and you know, Dad, what did you do? What did you think? And I said, <laughs> I really don't know. I had no plan. Never. I just saw opportunities and jumped and saw opportunities and jumped. But I've never had a doubt that I could do mm. anything that I wanted to do. I refuse to believe in life mm. that, that you can and can't do. I think you can, you can do anything if you, if you believe enough. And I always felt that way. And it's like, I want to do that. It's, it's, it's like when we made the TV shows and we were screen testing people, you know, I'd say to the director, I want to be on the other side of the camera. And so I'd screen test mm. because why not? You know, it's, it's just, it's just the only thing holding you back is you. Mm. I really like that's great that's good advice actually and great self-confidence I think you know we're, I agree actually I think some people lose they get they get scared don't they take all these opportunities and chances I, I love well, that people think they they belong in a certain box or they belong in a certain um, criteria or uh, you know a certain area of the world where you know I don't come from this so I can't do that or I haven't learnt this so I can't do that or or I can't afford to do this and I can't afford to do that just just find a way to there's a way to do everything if you want to do it badly enough mm-hmm. you'll find a way to do it but sometimes you've just got to stick your neck out and, and bluff because mm-hmm. that, sometimes that's the, that's the only way to get the opportunity you know don't, don't, don't ever be afraid to have a go because you know if it goes wrong so what yeah. go do something else yeah I like that um, you you moved up uh, quickly in the ranks in the magazine world. You, you did a lot of different jobs. Is that right, Dave? You didn't just sit there writing. You you were involved in editing and getting involved in the the, the, the way it looks and feels. I mean, can you? I know it's a tough question, but can you run us through a really a sort of snapshot of your career in magazines? Where where you went and what sort of, sort of new roles you took on? Which was your most enjoyable place or your magazine to work at? Sure, I was. Um... 
I was at yeah, Intermediates and Special Reserves was the first place I worked at. Um, I joined them as a deputy editor. Um, and as deputy editor in those days, you were kind of with a magazine designer as well because there were small teams. Like I say, desktop publishing had just come in. It was a black and white magazine, so it was pretty easy to do. And I, I, I was an artist. I'd come off an honours degree in um, at the Bath Academy, so I, I, I could draw as well. So I could illustrate, I could write, I could desktop publish. So I went in there as a deputy editor. Um, just over a year later, I was the manager of publishing in the group. I um, had three magazines under my belt. Um, I was writing and designing and, and, and publishing. So it only took me a year to get there. Um, yeah. Then I got offered the, um, the opportunity to go and talk to Hewland about making Games Master. Yeah. Um, 91. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. Uh, and um, so I went and did that. Then I went back into magazines and joined Paragon Publishing, um, who were in Trowbridge at the time. And um, I went down there. They needed a magazine designer. So I went down there as a magazine designer. But obviously, with my history of writing, reviewing, and the TV work, um, I was multifaceted. I was, I was capable of doing a lot more than that. So um, we then moved Paragon down to Bournemouth. Um, when Paragon got to Bournemouth, I um, had been designing and writing for um, a new magazine called Megapower. Um, and the editor was leaving the company. So I put myself forward to be editor of the magazine with, with no national press editing experience. Mm. They gave me the opportunity. I became the editor of that magazine. Um, then I became the editor of um, uh, Games World magazine, which was another TV show I was doing. Yeah. It, was a, it was a tie-in license to the TV show. So that was a big deal for the company. And I picked my own team. Then I became managing editor um, and managed seven or eight titles for them, um, including launching magazines like Play, yeah. uh, Player, um, X-Gen, overseeing magazines um, like the uh, CD32, um, magazines like that. We, we just launched so many magazines around that time. Um, and, of course, freelance writing and doing the TV shows as well. And then around 96, I think it was, I dropped out. And went and worked for THQ um, Limited because I wanted to find out what life was like on the other side of the uh, of the world, if you like, you yeah. know, of the fence. I've been reviewing and um, traveling around the world, looking at games and writing about games. Now I wanted to find out what it was like to be one of the producers of games. Mm. So I worked at THQ for a year or so, um, then met. Mark Smith, who owned Rapide Publishing at the time, who were an up-and-coming, very aggressive young publishing company. I met him in the uh, urinals of a strip club in Atlanta, <laughs> even right. or not. Um, he, he was a local boy like me from the southwest, and he said, you know, why don't you come and work for us? And I said, I, you couldn't afford me. Um, and I knew that that would be – I knew his character was such that that would be like a red rag to a bull. Um, we got in touch. We came up with some ideas for launching – the country's first unofficial PlayStation magazine with a cover demo disc, because up wow. until then the official PlayStation magazine was uh, capitalizing on that. No one else was allowed to do it. But from working for THQ, I knew how Sony's internal departments worked, so I knew who to go to. Nice. Um, we we did that. I went to went joined Rapid. I became uh, managing uh, editor down there. Then I became um, uh, publishing director down there, and. Um, editorial director, sorry, down there for the company. 
And we launched, um, I looked after magazines like Total PlayStation, Total N64, um, PC Power. Um, and then uh, we launched Station, which was um, a huge launch uh, with an official disc on the front, which no one had been able to do up to that point. Lots of legal wrangles. Yeah. Uh, and, um, I think our first ABC on that one um, was 134,000. 132,645, I think is the figure. <laughs> wow. Oh, because we went into the top 100 magazines um, in the country, and there was only us, and I think there was only us in the official PlayStation magazine in that ranking at the time. Maybe a, maybe a magazine was in there as well. But it was a big, big deal for an unofficial title. Uh, it was the biggest ABC ever for a, um, an unofficial um, yeah, single format magazine. So it was, it was huge for a little company yeah, yeah. in, in the West country. And the company had no ABCs until I went there. And then with Mark Smith, we worked and we eat all the magazines and we topped a number of the markets with our first set of ABCs. And they were very, very exciting times. Um, and then eventually, um, Rapid ran into some financial difficulties. Um, I set up my own publishing company, um, called Predator. Mm. Uh, around for over seven years and um uh but i avoided games magazines i i ran um a movie magazine called dvd monthly and a car magazine called diesel car right. and uh, i deliberately avoided games could i ask why you what, any reason why you avoided games uh i'm brutally honest i felt the games industry had had enough of me you, uh, fair enough fair enough a bit like People were sick of me. People wanted me to go away. Um, you know, my, my character at the time was such the whole games animal thing. It, the, the image and the persona had become so big. Um, you know, I, I was in company magazine. I was in the independence uh, supplements. The Daily Mirror were flying me up to train with the Manchester United players to promote products. I was, it was big. And, um, I just felt that, um, there was a lot of resentment. And mm. that was taking the fun out of what I was doing. And, and when I started doing what I was doing, I thought the industry would grow with me and other people would follow. And we'd be in a games industry full of these amazing characters who were able to transcend the hobby and bring it into the mainstream. Yeah. But it didn't work that way. It was just me by myself <laughs> and a lot of resentment. And so I just decided that, um, you know, something had to change. And, and I would just make a clean break and do something else I loved which was movies nice. no no regrets at all then no regrets leaving the games industry for a little while then do you reckon that was the right decision I think I had to I think I had to um, after what happened with the games master TV show yeah. um, on, on the famous Christmas edition yeah. um, and then two years later I was filming Games World 4 and just halfway through filming it just after we'd made the Christmas special um, I went to the producers and just asked to be let out of my contract. I said, uh, I, I just, I, I can't do it anymore. I've got too many distractions. I'm not in love with it like I used to be. Um, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was expecting um, my first child. And um, it just felt like um, I was, I, I don't know, it was. It, it had become too much like work and it was never supposed to be work. Yeah. It was all fun. And I always believed in it. And I always felt I was trying to help the industry and be part of the industry and to show people what they could do within the industry. Um, but it had become work because 
people were turning on me. People didn't want me being there. Yeah. I don't know if I was embarrassing people because I was achieving at a level that a lot of them weren't achieving at, um, and whether they wanted to be um, have higher personas than they did. Maybe I was in their way. I don't know. But it just felt like um, there was a lot of resentment coming my way, and um, it just wasn't fun. Yeah, it wasn't. So I just I, I just decided, well, you know, if it's not fun, I'll start playing games for me again. Yeah, because as you damn man, when you're playing games, when you're playing games for four to six hours a night, um, you know, I know a lot of people do that. They play them all day now, but back then, and um, these weren't games you wanted to play. You know, if I if I was doing a, a presentation somewhere up country for some game, um, you know, I was going to Manchester, I was going to Sheffield, I was going to Liverpool. Someone had hired me to go and, and, and launch this game in a shopping centre or in a shop or to open Virgin Megastores for Richard Branson, which I did, and things like that. You know, I had to play the games that were on promotion at the time. Right. Um, so maybe I wanted to play Cannon Fodder. Maybe I wanted to play um, uh, a Chaos Engine or maybe you know, a game like that, or Football Manager. Again, those kind of games, but I couldn't play them yeah. because those games weren't couldn't be used in a challenge environment. I had to play games that... A, people wanted me wanted to pay me to play, mm. and B, the other people could come on stage and take me on on. And so you, you end up constantly having to play and practice games that aren't the games you want to play. And yeah. then it work. And after a little while, you just start thinking, hey, hang on, this isn't what I got into gaming for. Mm. So I, I'm, just, I'm just playing these games that I don't like very much, just so a bunch of people can come and and try and beat me at them. <laughs> uh, you know, so it just becomes a little bit, um, you know, you start questioning why you're at it. And I wanted to go back to loving games and choosing what I wanted to play. If I want to play Age of Empires for the next three months, um, then I'll play Age of Empires yeah. for the next three months, rather than having to play, you know, Bare Knuckle Fighter or something, just because a company that's producing Bare Knuckle Fighter um, is going to fly me, um, up to Scotland to play it against 300 kids or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it, yeah, it became it it became like work, and um, so yes, no no regrets at all because when I stopped when I stopped earning my living from games, I could just start enjoying them again. Yeah, yeah. I really really like the answer. I've really, never really thought of that point of view, so I really appreciate the honesty there, Dave. That's really interesting, definitely. Um. When I was growing up, I mean, I, I used to buy lots of magazines. I, I, a few I preferred over the others, but it always seemed to me there was a huge battle in the video game industry, quite similar to like the Sega versus the Nintendo wars. I mean, how would you was 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 there real hatred between the magazines, or was that all part of the show, or did you actually get along with your rival editors, or how would you describe uh, the different magazines you were competing against? Well, a lot of people, some people got on. There were some people always who um, were social butterflies and they could move between the magazines. And there was a fair few people as well, writers that had gone from magazine to magazine and had been poached or had changed, gone to a higher circulation magazine or, you know, so there were certain people who yeah. kind of like pulled the whole thing together. But generally um, you were like tribes yeah. and you'd go to functions like say, um, say someone was launching um, some big Amiga game, say Lemmings was launching or something, and um, you, you'd all receive your tickets to go to this. Uh, everyone, all the PR companies, it was a wonderful time. The PR companies were trying to come up with these amazing concepts 
um, to give you, you know, the, the, your time, your life, fly you to Vegas, fly you to LA, fly you to Russia, mm. fly you wherever and put you up in a great hotel and uh, give you great experiences. And um, so you, you would just go along with these things. But it was great, but you'd be stuck on planes um, with, you know, say you were the lucky 14 writers that they wanted to take because you were, were the most influential writers in the marketplace at the time. Yeah. And you'd be stuck on a plane for like, like 18 hours, 12 hours or something with a bunch of people and you just didn't talk to each other because yeah. you were suspicious of each other and because you'd spent all year trying to smash each other's magazines and beat each <laughs> other and things like that. And, and it was quite, quite tribal. Mm. And uh, quite often um, it, was, uh, it, it was very awkward, very difficult. Um, you know, uh, people did come to blows. Not a lot of the time, because you know most most games journalists were pretty much you know sh sheep in wolves' clothing. Um, but um, it, you know you did have those moments, and um, it was very weird. I remember one day um, being in a bar um, with a particular publisher. I'd uh, someone I'd been out to dinner with that night um, from uh, a, a software producer. Uh, it was their hotel. I got back to the hotel. It wasn't where I was staying. And I saw this other publisher and all their journalists, you know, big name journalists. I knew who they were from the magazines, seeing them around, all sat in the bar. So yeah. I was I was about four or five drinks into the evening. So me being me and having the personality I had back then, <laughs> I walked into the bar and sat myself right amongst them. I sat right in the middle of them all. <laughs> like a couple of the guys I'd worked with, other publishers, and I knew them. So I sat and talked to them, and they were so embarrassed to be talking to me really? in all they now worked for because that was like they didn't want to be seen as turncoating you know Ugh. oh my god it's fucking Dave Perry you know and <laughs> yeah. you know but he hates him but I should be nice to him because I've always got on with him but you know and then people the publishers like the managers of the, of the companies I remember the, the publisher the publisher of this particular magazine company you know was there with their um with their allowance you know for, for keeping the journalists happy and um, they'd be at the bar buying rounds of drinks for everybody to keep them all happy, but deliberately not buying me one every time. Yeah. So all these drinks would be going back to the bar, one short. They'd be, they'd, it, was like, it was made that clear, you know, we don't want you here. Yeah. Um, and it was, it, was, it was like that, you know, it wasn't, you know, sometimes you'd get together, you, you, you'd get on quite well. There was one trip, um, Virgin took us off to Vegas, I think it was, um, to, to go to Westwood Studios. And there's a bunch of journalists, and they obviously all knew each other and, and gone on great together. Um, and a few of us were outside, as you know, and, and it's awkward. You all, you all out having a drink and playing in the swimming pool together with a bunch of other semi-grown-up people, you know, who don't like you, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. You're trying to fit. So, so, you, so, so you're not the weird one, but it's, it was very odd. Sometimes you were forced into these situations, and being young, um, you know, you, you're not quite sure how you should react, you know? No, I understand. I understand, man. <laughs> Interesting times, definitely. Um, Dave, out of all the magazines you've worked on, it can be an individual magazine itself or the whole, whole kind of series. Is, it, is there one you're most proud of? you have a personal favourite? And is, it, is there also a sort of rival magazine you always secretly respected and sort of, well, I kind of respect their work as well? Which is your favourite magazines? My favourite magazine I ever actually worked on, my favourite time mm. in magazines definitely, was uh, Games World. Yeah. Uh, when um, I was working for Hewland, 
um, as a presenter on Games World, and I had a, a proper full-on presenter's contract um, with with decent, you know, money allowance, and and it was it was a real full-on thing because when I'd been on Games Master. Um, initially, I was a co-presenter, like the other journalists. We'd come on, we'd do our bit, we'd go. Yeah. Um, Dexter took over season three of Games Master. Yeah. I be- I became a presenter for that season because when the- when halfway through Oxford Prison got recommissioned and we got moved to the London Dungeons, they turned it into a challenge format, and they needed me because I've been doing the challenge formats to Games World. So they asked me would I co-present it with Dexter on a permanent basis, no other presenters. So I said yeah. Mm-hmm. So that for me was vindication that I was doing a good job, that they got rid of everyone else and took me on. Yeah. Um, although I never get any credit for being a presenter of Games Master. I'm always a co-presenter, but I was, I, that, was, that was a presenter's job. Um, and then, of course, when Dom came back for season four, I went back to being a co-presenter, but Games World um, gave me a full presenter's contract. So anyway, that show was a show I was very much involved with yeah. and felt very passionate about. And um, myself and Pat Kelly um, at Paragon... Uh, we put together the we put together a a, a a kind of an idea and a proposal for Hewland, and we went up there and we proposed to them that we produce an official magazine for the for the show, um, similar to Games Master that Future were doing because Future had the Games Master license and Games Master was an amazing magazine. It was yeah. kicking ass, huge sales figures. So obviously we wanted something like that. The only other thing like that was Games World. So. When we got that magazine, obviously we had good expect- high expectations for it. Being a multi-format magazine, you've got more opportunities for advertising than you have on a single-format magazine as well. So these things are all good. So you got suddenly you got a bit more budget. And then Paragon gave me my own um, uh, office and room for my team. Um, and then Paragon also gave me the opportunity to hand-pick my own team. So I went out and I poached a couple of um, people. I, 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 um, Mark Kendrick. Designer came over from Impact, I think it was, and I, I poached a writer from somewhere else. And then some of the teams that were in Paragon at the time, I have uh, cherry picked, uh, you know, a, a, a production editor. I've cherry picked a couple of journalists, a deputy editor. Deputy editor was Nick Walkland, who'd been working um, at Hewland with me on Games Master and Games World, so I brought him down because he had a writing background. Aid Price came in; he'd been he was an ex-future journalist. Um, but he'd been working on Games Master, so I brought him in. So I put this team together. Yeah. It was hand-booked, and um, I loved those guys. That was a great, great team, and we worked some long, long hours. Sometimes, you know, we didn't go home for two days. We'd work through the night, get the magazine done. We pulled some great strokes to get exclusives. We totally badgered each other and um, took the piss out of each other all the time, got on each other's nerves, yeah. but loved that magazine. And um, that was my favorite magazine that I ever produced and, and, and my favorite time in magazines, definitely. Um, great, great times. Brilliant. Um, and then my favorite magazine ever, the one magazine I'd like to have been a part of but wasn't, was in my early days. There was a magazine called Zero. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And that was a great magazine. They, they were a great team. There were two magazines then um, from the same publishers. I think it was Dennis. And um, it was Zero and it was Ace. And both those magazines, uh, David Wilson was the editor of Zero, and um, they had such a great atmosphere and such a great sense of humor, very surreal, but very on it. 
And it was very much like in the 90s, you would look forward to Loaded coming out because you couldn't wait to see what the guys had got up to in it. It was like that, but but in a games magazine format, you couldn't wait to get a copy of Zero and read it because it was a brilliant, brilliant magazine. And um, yeah, I really, really loved those magazines. I love that, Dave. Um, Bit of a random question. Did you personally, have you still got today a a copy of all the magazines you've you've ever produced or are they long, long gone? It's a funny story. Depends how you want to look at it. Um, I um, I always kept two or three copies of every magazine I ever made. Yeah. Um, wherever I appear in a magazine, I always ask for at least three copies to be sent to me, and I always keep three copies of every magazine I ever made or appeared in. And as you can imagine, that, that, <laughs> it's a lot. That ran into hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. And, uh, no, not hundreds of thousands. Sorry, thousands. Yeah, yeah. Not hundreds. Of, now, now I am bigging myself up. No, <laughs> and um, so I had boxes and boxes of all these magazines very carefully. Um, preserved things like um, Sega Pro 4 which had uh, digital watches cover mounted on the front and yep. things like that and I had all of these things were still on them and they were all perfectly kept and I kept them through the years and then three years ago um, we moved house um, myself and my family and um, we'd been living in the house we were in for you know, 16 years 15 years and I built a lot of stuff in there. I built up a lot of um, stuff in storage so when we moved we had a big clear out so I cleared everything out mm. Um, sold all my games machines and everything at the time. All this stuff that was valuable that I thought was not valuable because it didn't mean so much to me. I just sold and gave away. And um, but I kept all my magazines. And um, when we got to the new house and unpacked, they weren't there. Oh no! All we could think is that we had some boxes for taking to the tip, and we had boxes for, te- for putting in the removal lorries, oh. and we could magazine boxes somehow got mixed up with the tip boxes. I got taken to a dump and got dumped. And um, <laughs> no. I'm sure some, some unkind people will say that's all they deserve. But um, <laughs> that was my whole career was in that box. And I preserved it carefully for 30 years or so. And then in, in one house move, I managed to lose a lot. And, I, and to this day, I don't know what happened to them. But oh, they're, they're not. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I've got one more final question about magazines. So we'll move on to TV if that's okay. Um we, on Arcade Attack, we recently did a podcast on Rise of the Robots. And regarding that game, there were some strong accusations that a few magazines were, I don't want to use the word bribed, but there was a pressure on the magazines to give the game good reviews. Did you, I mean, we, we, I can't confirm that, I'm, I'm sure you can't yourself, but was there any, was there any, ever, any pressure from companies to give games positive reviews? Any sneaky ways? Did we do that? Did we give them give it a good review? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what magazine it was, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Rise of the Robots, interesting one. Rise of the Robots. Um, just trying to think if we ever gave it a front cover. We, we, we a lot of magazines were giving it a lot yeah. of coverage, front cover, cover stuff. Bribes. There were uh, any any industries like that. People are always trying to um, curry favour with you. Um, not so much obviously as bribes, money, and so forth, but you get given things. Mm. You're given things all the time. There was never. I was never given anything um, with a guarantee that I would give something back. Sure. But people knew that if they took care of you, it was harder for you to give their products um, damaging reviews. Yeah. You know. So why you got flown all over the world and and you know, taken to the best hotels and you know fed wonderful food and taken to to shows. You know. I I I've oh, I've eaten in a 
pool surrounded by alligators. <laughs> I, I, I've stayed in a hotel with, with, with a canal barge through the reception that takes you to the five restaurants. I've played golf in the desert. I've, um, what else have I, just, just amazing, amazing things. I've, I've been given great life experiences by companies, mm. but they weren't that because they liked me. They were doing that because they had a product they wanted me on side with. And that happens a lot. Rise of the Robots, um, I think, got a lot of very positive, um, releases initially because it looked so damn good. Yeah, it does. It was a not looking game. Um, the company at the time behind it, I think, were called Mirage. Yeah. Um, and they were a really nice company to deal with. They had um, lovely PR people. Uh, they were a nice company to deal with. Um, and nobody ever got any real shit off of them. So um, we, at the time, I remember we all very much liked Mirage. And Rise of the Robots, uh, they took me up to Nottingham, I think it was, which was where the arcade company, I'm trying to think of the name, Bell, maybe I'm not. No, no, I'm not sure who they were, but they, the arcade company that, that made the arcade machines um, with Rise of the Robots in, um, and uh, they were really great people. And we got to see the prototype arcade machines and and play on the prototype machines and everything, um, and give them our opinions. They wanted our um, feedback all the way through the development and everything. But I worked very closely with them, and um, you know they were just a really nice company, but. The game sucked. <laughs> yeah. When the game came out, it was a terrible, terrible game. It didn't do a lot of the things that I think everybody hoped it was going to do or thought it was going to do. And it was a very poor game to play, but it looked really nice. Um, so I think maybe, I can't vouch for anybody, I don't know who did what, but maybe some people wrote reviews before they saw the finished copies of the game. Yeah, yeah. To my knowledge, nobody got bribed. Um, there's always allegations of this kind of thing and there would always be journalists who we knew were more friendly with one company than they were with another um there would sometimes be things happening like with advertising if a company had just signed on for you know a a, a long period of advertising with your publication um you know your advertising people didn't want you then to slam their products because that would damage damage the advertising because they might then pull out their advertising or whatever so as journalists you were always under pressure to, um, to to go the way um, people wanted you to go with these products because these products were worth a lot of money to people. Of course, yeah. Um, but generally, generally, most journalists um, stuck to their guns, you know, because because that was how it was. You know, that's how our reputations were built. And, you know, you, you can only send people out to buy Duff Games so many times before they stop reading your reviews. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you, you've got to be honest, but no, I never saw anybody actually. I never knew of anybody actually getting bribe as such. Yeah. But we were looked after very nicely by, by by companies. Usually around the time there was a big game being released, definitely. But that's just PR. Sure. No, Dave, that's a really good answer. Um, Games Master. I grew up on that show. It was amazing for me. One of the best in my eyes. One of the games uh, shows I look forward to watching every every Friday. I think it was on Channel Four. How exactly did you get this opportunity? Did you apply for the job? Were you approached? What was the job interview like for this amazing opportunity? I think it's one of the first sort of shows for games. I believe it was the first show for games. The first one in this country. Mm. I think it was one in America um, that we saw uh, when we were researching it. But um, no, I, I was working on the magazines for intermediates. I was freelancing and writing for a number of national 
press magazines and papers at the time and building my name. And on a daily basis, I was talking to all the PR companies um, in and around Europe and UK. And um, Hewlin were producing the show and they'd started running some advertising saying they wanted designers for the show, they wanted games experts for the show. And um, some people put my name forward for it. Nice. Said, you know, you should, if you want a games expert, you should speak to Dave Perry. Um, you know, he at this address, he's a great guy, he knows his games. And um, so I got invited in to go and meet, um, I believe Jane was there, Jane Hewland, who owns the company, or owns the company, I don't know if the company still exists. Um, Adam Wood, the director, uh, the producer and Cameron McAllister, the director, and they're all sat in a room and I went and saw them and I talked to them and um, I just rattled on and told them, showed them the magazines I've produced and been producing and talked to them about the games industry and what I did and didn't like about it how what I would like to see from a TV show and things like that. And that was it. And it was on the Isle of Dogs down in um, Canary Wharf and uh, I went home and I thought, well, yeah, that'd be good if I get that job. Yeah. It was a big pay cut for me. It was less than I was being paid at the time. Oh, really? Um, but it felt like a step up. It felt like mm. being involved in something very, very exciting. And it was television. Mm. Yeah. Those days, you know, satellite TV was very embryonic. There was no internet. So you were either on one of the four channels on telly or you weren't seen. Yeah. It was the big thing. Yeah. There was, there was only channels. There was nothing else. So, um, um, it was, it was as big as it could get, really. Um, without me really knowing what was involved because I'd never worked in TV. So I went back home and carried on with my magazines and I got offered the job. So took the job, went down to connect, drove in from, oh, from Harlow, Hartford, just outside of Harlow, uh, Bishop Stalford every day, caught, uh, caught the tube in from Epping. Uh, it took me about an hour and a half every morning, two hours wow. to get to get to work for nine o'clock you know we'd be sat on trail on, on the underground at 6 30 you know just looking at people that were gray because they looked like they wanted to die so tired <laughs> yeah. drinking coffee and you know and going to work every day but when you got to work it was incredible we we didn't know what, you know what we were doing obviously everybody knew what they're doing with the director producer the company had made tv shows before they knew what they were doing with, t- with tv shows but nobody knew how to make a video games tv show we had nothing to go on. It had not been done before. And um, I remember I was sat down and I was trying to organize prizes for the for the shows. We knew we had, I think it was 12 shows the first season, I'm not sure. And so we had to have prizes. So I was organizing holidays and arcade machines and things like this. And then we found out you couldn't, that there was a limit on um, financial worth of prizes for children under a certain age. Right. So it's going to be a, child, a branded it's a children's show. Um, we couldn't give away surprises. So then we had to go back to the drawing board with that. And then we had to. So that was when I came up with the golden joystick. Great idea. And, that was uh, your idea, Dave. Yeah. That, that was, yeah. Um, that was, um, I was sitting talking to a guy called Richard Secular, who worked for uh, Spectra Video at the time making peripherals. And I said, you know, we, we, we're trying to find prizes, you know, work out prizes for the show because we've never done it before. And he said, um, I've got 19 gold, I've got 19 joysticks. I said, well, <laughs> Which it's not not much of a prize. Said, no, these are golden joysticks. Wow. They're they're frayed gold and they're in glass cases, plastic cases. Uh, we give them to our best sellers, the, the stores that sell the most of our peripherals. We give the salesman a gold joystick. We've got nineteen left, and the promotion's over. Yeah. If you want, you can have them. And it was just like there was a light bulb moment. It's like ping, yes, golden yeah. joysticks. That's perfect. 
So I went to the producers, the director, I said, look, I can get Golden Joysticks. I can get you Golden Joysticks. How about that as a prize? And they were like, yeah, 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 great. Let's have a look. So I got Richard to come down with some of these, one of these Golden Joysticks <laughs> in a plaid box. And the box, like the, the top was off it. It was rickety and everything because it just been in storage. And they were just, and we went with Golden Joysticks. And uh, yeah, so, you know, it was just things like that. We were, we were constantly having to think on our feet. We, you know, how do you check out? How do you make a game challenge? You know, how long should a game yeah. challenge be? Yeah. They've been on telly before. How long could someone hold their interest? How long does a gamer need to prove they can play a game? You know, which games can you reset quickly for the next challenger whilst you've got an audience <laughs> watching? You know, things, it just, it had never been done before. Which console's overheated if you had them turned on for too long? Mm. You know, it was just loads of silly little things. And we had to rewrite, no, not rewrite all the rules. We had to write the rules. No one had done it. Mm. Um, so very, very exciting. We, the more and more we worked on the show, the more we knew we were doing something special. Yeah. I, I, I loved it. And it, it's amazing hearing these little stories, these little things where you don't really appreciate as a viewer, all these little things in the background. Uh, I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, it's like we got, got there. And, um, you know, we, we filming the first day and, uh, we got the golden sticks. We got the audience, um, most amazing feeling. The first time we turned the lasers and the smoke machines on, we were in a church wow. and we put our machines down the side of the church and we had laser machines and we had smoke machines in a church. Yeah. It was just like, just looked at each other and, and, and like, it was like, almost like a mad giggle between us because it was so naughty. Yeah. Look at what we do church. But then we did our challenges and someone won, we had to give them a golden joystick. Yeah. How do you give them a golden joystick? Where does it come from? So then we, we, we had a cassock and everything. So I had to dress up as a, as a monk, <laughs> a little monk, and come in off the side of the stage with a golden joystick and give it to Dom every time for him to present to the winners. So I was the, I was the golden joystick handler on the first season as well. I was the monk guy in that cassock. Um, you know, we, we, we just went along. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think is um, it's, it's still regarded so fondly today, the TV show Games Master? People reflect on it, even it's so iconic. What were the real ingredients? Why do you think it was, what were the main reasons why it was so successful? What's, what's the magic answer? It was successful, I think, because it was the first. Yeah. Um, so, and it got everything right. Um, and... Um, and initially, the reason it was so good at first, and I think deteriorated as time went on, was um, it didn't take itself seriously. Yeah. It was dark. It was quirky. You know, we had Patrick Moore in the sky. Yeah. We had dressed as a mad scientist. We were in a church with lasers. We had organ music. It was just, it was a little bit gothic. It was a little bit tongue-in-cheek. And then, of course, Dominic brought his... Um, his, you know, his innuendos and his naughty sense of humour into it. And it was just a little bit irreverent. Yeah. And wasn't trying to be cool, it just was cool. Yeah. And the season went on, as the, as the show went on, I think um, it tried, it started trying too hard hmm. um, to be cool. And in doing that, it lost its coolness a little bit, you know? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. It, did, it started so well, it, it, I agree, it sort of petered out towards the end, didn't it? Um, how would you how would you describe the atmosphere from like the first series, the early days, compared to the last few months before you left? Was it a, was there a big tangible difference between the two? 
Yeah, the early days, the early days were, it, it was musketeers, you know, yeah. we, we were all in it together. Um, we didn't know what we were doing, you know. Um, we were, everybody was very excited. Uh, Cameron McAllister, the director, um, I maintain to this day as a genius. Uh, he was just making, he was just an eccentric and he was bringing his eccentricities out into the world through the show and we were buying it and we were going with it and he was just doing wonderful tongue-in-cheek very english mm. eccentricities and um dominic it was his first um proper gig as a presenter he did he um he'd auditioned for the word which was a music show yeah. and had, had turned down and it was them that gave us his tape uh, from his audition and we we interviewed a few of the um guys that and girls that had failed for the word and he was one of them and um we took him on so he was desperate to do a good job so he was very enthusiastic we were all just we couldn't believe we were working in television you know it's yeah. just fucking brilliant we were getting to meet our heroes in that we were um back then before i was writing for the really big national magazines you know the julian rignalls and the tim boons and people like that you know they were very much people whose work i'd been reading and i was inviting them on the show and working with them on the show uh, you know we had people like um Emlyn Hughes and uh, Eric Bristow and Barry McGuigan, you know, big sports stars coming on the show to compete. Amazing. We were just in a world that we'd never been in before. Yeah. And it was amazing. And it was amazing. And then the second season came along and it was in the big uh, water factory, water pump factory. And that had a great feeling because it felt like Aliens next to Alien. Alien had been dark and gothic and different. Alien was just like big budget and everything was going on. We had a huge audience screaming. And that felt great. Mm. Um, and then the deck, the, then season three came along after Dominic had left, and um, Dexter came in. And poor old Dexter, it was his first presenting gig. He hadn't presented before. Um, and what people fail to realise with that season is that that was the first time the original team that made Games Master was no longer there. Yeah. Um, Dominic had left to go and do his own thing. Um, the producer and director, Adam Wood and Cameron McAllister had also both gone off to do different things. So it had a new producer and director who weren't getting on particularly well at the time. Uh, it had a presenter who had never presented before. And then uh, it was started being filmed in Oxford Prison. Then Oxford Prison got recommissioned by the government. Oh, so no. the whole game and the whole format got changed. And it was a difficult, difficult show to make. Because yeah. it was the first, time, the first two shows were nice and easy because everybody was a gang and everybody knew what the original concept had been mm. in those offices in those early days. For season three, suddenly everything was thrown to the wind and it was very, very difficult. Um, and then Dom came back for season four and um, just, and once again, new new director, new producer, I think, came in and the winds changed again. Um, but something was different by this time. Sure. Um, different people, different personalities. Um, and they wanted different things from the show. There, there were certain personal agendas that moved into the show, I think, and, um, and the show was, was different, and um, I was still there, and to this day, I don't know why suddenly I was an outcast mm. in what I could my own show. I, I don't know if it was because I had been so intrinsic in season three, because when the show was falling apart, I'd helped keep it together with Dexter, yeah. and I'd present half of it and then most of the people from season three had left and i was left there still working on season four with the new people and i don't know if maybe i was you know 
almost seen as as the enemy, you know. I don't know, but I think season four was when Dominic was started making faces behind my back when I was presenting mm. on camera. Is it, yeah, that definitely was happening. Um, and then from then on in, it just became very, very difficult, if I'm honest. I used to go up and do my shows and do the reviews section and do the live challenges. But I used to sit by myself. I used to keep myself to myself. No one would talk to me, really, um, very much. Um, I'd go up and be professional. I'd sit with the, the games review, the, um, the, the game guys, the researchers, and they'd go through the levels and show me what, you know, what we were going to get the, the, the contestants to do, yeah. um, to look out for, what to point out to the viewers. Um, and then um, I'd meet the contestants and yeah, do some selfies and go through the levels with them and tell them what to watch out for and everything. And I would do my bit as professional as I could. And then I'd go home or I'd go back to the hotel if I was filming again the next day or whatever. Um, and, um, yeah, sometimes, you know, I say the hotel, a lot of the time um, we weren't paid. Um, we'd be sleeping on someone's floor and, and I was doing all of that because I loved the show. Yeah. Um, but on set, I was definitely becoming more and more alienated, you know, more and more of an outcast. I think my persona outside of the show maybe as well, where I was this bragging games animal that was calling himself the best gamer in the country and I was traveling all over the country and appearing in national magazines and newspapers and that. I was, you know, I think that maybe was riling people. I think people thought maybe I'd got too big for my boots yeah. and wanted to be down a peg. I don't know, but it, it became awkward. The atmosphere wasn't the same. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like uh, the, you know, when you left the magazine industry, it became more like a job, not a, not like a fun uh, adventure kind of thing. It's a, it's a shame, isn't it, Dave? It is a shame, but you see, and this is it now, this is... This is this is what I was doing at the time. My what I worked out from the very early st- early days of the games industry, um, when the golden age of games industry, as they call it, came about. Um, what excited me about the games industry was that our parents didn't get it. Yeah. Okay. Like I, I I'd lived through, I'd grown up through the punk era with the Sex Pistols and the Banshee. That okay. And parents hated the fact that their kids were listening to this music because they didn't get it. Rock and roll, when rock and roll came around, parents hated it yeah. because get it. Now suddenly we were nerds. We were, we, you know, some of us we were in computer clubs at school while the other kids were playing rugby and shit. And um, we were programming and coding, and um, we were nerds. Then all of a sudden, the, the, the whole games thing started getting bigger and bigger, and it became something. Um, and so we were started playing games. And getting pirated CDs and cassettes and things like that, and put loading them at night, and sitting there for thirty-five minutes waiting for Lunar Lander to suddenly start working, and things like this. And I, our parents became suspicious of what we were doing. You know, mm. it's kind of like, well, what are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm playing. You know, I'm playing a text adventure, and they're like, why are you spending your time doing that? You know, you're wasting your life. You should be you should be outside. You're doing this. But they didn't like it, and because they didn't like it, and then it was suddenly getting bigger and bigger, and suddenly stories were happening about you know youngsters becoming millionaires and billionaires. Parents were suspicious of it. They didn't get it. So we were kind of like electronic punks. We were like, mm. we, we, we had our youth movement. And the youth movement, you know, in, in the 80s, um, the late 80s, early 90s, wasn't so much makeup or raves and that. The, the, the biggest youth movement was, was gaming. Yeah, it was yeah. becoming. 
And it, of course, it would go on to become bigger than the music industry and bigger than the film industry. But it was happening. Now, what I saw from, from the early days was that it was the, the, the potential of the games industry was infinite. But in its current form, it was finite because the reason the music industry was so big, the reason the film industry was so big at the time was when the latest Star Wars film came out, when the latest Oasis album came out, whatever it was, the journalists, the news programs, the documentary makers, they could go to the Gallagher brothers, they could go to George Lucas, they could go to the star of the film, they could go to the latest um, singer on the record, they could go to these people and they could interview them. Mm. They could... They could find out what makes them tick. They could do photo shoots with them. They could do spreads in the magazines with them. They when Tomb Raider hit, or Sonic the Hedgehog hit, or Super Mario hit, or, or any video game hit, the journalists, the documentary makers, the news people didn't know who to go to. Yeah. They had to go to guys because the stars weren't real. No one can interview Sonic. No one can interview Lara. No one can interview... Mario, these people aren't real. So the games industry um, was being held back by the fact that it couldn't gain mainstream acceptance because the mainstream had no way of connecting with it. So I tried to become this character. I created the games animal character and the me who was traveling around the country playing challenges, opening stores, doing the TV shows. Um, That was that character because I felt if I could become that guy then the media could come to me, mm. um, I could help grow the games industry. And like I said earlier, I thought that other people would see that. And they'd do the same. they go, well, if he's doing it, I'm going to do it. You know, I want to go to a red carpet event. I want to do this. I want to yeah. do that. I want to be glossy magazine. And other characters would evolve into the games industry. And then we'd all become this, this kind of like WWF gang of <laughs> larger-than-life characters. Obviously not as muscly. He's a wimpy. <laughs> But we 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 we'd be these characters, and yeah, yeah. people would games industry would grow with us. Um, but it didn't happen. People, all that all that happened was people resented myself putting my hand up and going, "Talk to me, photograph me." Yeah. You know, that became a resented thing. And um, but that was always the problem the games industry had, I think. And that was what I was trying to do from day one was show people that if we're going to grow this, we're going to have even more fun with this. Mm. Become it really interesting I mean I suppose I, I don't know if you agree Dave but Games World they try to create some characters as well like Big Boy Barry do you reckon that's a, a, a sort of failed experiment a little bit as well is that part of of your suggestion that maybe these could be characters that could be help the industry grow do you reckon that's a fair reflection or do you think it's a bit different it's a little bit different I think I think almost certainly I think I think I must have influenced that a little bit by yeah. being my I, I mean you know you know, I was the first guy to do what I was doing, um, and then these guys, and then Games World. And obviously, I was working with Cameron and Adam and the guys that did Games World. But I was working with them on Games Animal, so I would think that there was a certain amount of influence there. But probably a little bit of me, a little bit of WWF as it was at the time, WWE now, and all that. I think probably, you know, that came into it and produced these games characters, these these, these strange gaming characters. Mm. I think that was more down to Cameron's personal eccentricities. You know, it was a wonderful, wonderful idea. Mm. Um, but they could never really work in the way that I wanted it to work because um, they were fake. Yeah, you know yeah, they, yeah. Because they were created characters that were given to the guys playing them 
to be like actors, you know, apart from in the first season when Radian Automatic was on there. Now, he, he was a genuine journalist, you know, and called himself Radian Automatic. So he was genuine. But I think that, you know, the big boy Barry and Master Moriarty and yeah. um, Mega Buck Millionaire and people like this, you know, those were names that the TV company kind of came up with and characters and they gave to the yeah. guys. And the, the, the guys kind of ran with them. But when you're, when you're fake, when, you, when you're playing a character, then you're not a lot better than the game's character mm-hmm. in, the, in the machine because people want the real deal, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I wanted was a bunch of real expert gamers who kind of had larger-than-life personas and personalities, you know, but for real. Yeah, no, I completely understand. Yeah. and call themselves a name, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, was your personality, was Games Animal very similar to your personality? Was it almost like an exaggeration of yourself, or is it... Are you a very different person on, off, and off on stage? I am. I, I am now. Um, I probably was a different person on the stage because I think that being the game's animal gave me um, the kind of the confidence mm. to do what I did. I think if you're going to, um, you know, open a Virgin Mega Store, or you're going to present the TV hits party, or you're going to, you know, um, be one of the Britain's 50 most eligible bachelors in company magazine, things like that, you know, you have to have the confidence to turn up and to stand on a stage or to stand in front of cameras, you know, and and do that. And I think that, you know, sometimes, I, I remember a story years back, um, Bruce Forsyth um, told the story, and he used to say, when he used to go on stage, if ever you watch Bruce Forsyth come on stage, he comes on quite fast, and that's because before he comes into the view of the public, he does a little skip, and that skip puts him in character. It's just like, it just G's him up to do yep. it. So, you know, it was like that, really. I put the bandana on, and when I had the bandana on, um, I was that guy. Yeah. But it was me. You yep. know, that, that, I, was, I was comfortable being that guy. I was, I was cocky back then, because I was bloody good. Mm. You know, I, I didn't get, I didn't, well, the only time, really, that I ever got, you know, openly clearly beaten was in was in a setup. Um, yeah, you want to talk about apart, later. Apart from that, you know, I used to travel over the country and play everybody. And of course you lose. I lost a lot of games. You yeah. know, everybody loses. You can't play games and not lose. Um, but I was really, really good. So I was really, really confident. But then again, I was doing it for a living, you know, whereas the people that turned up to play me weren't doing it for a living. You know, they, they were doing it for fun or whatever. So it's kind of like, a, you know, a, a professional a professional sprinter goes up against a guy who's part of his local athletics club you know he doesn't stand a chance because he's not doing it professionally yeah. you know but it, it was it was like that. yeah I was that guy a bit good stuff I mean I don't want to talk too much about um, sort of the bad times in Games Master I mean, you sort of gone to a little bit there but when when I when we previously interviewed you in our text interview, you spoke about how you initially got along with Dominic Diamond very well, and it, it turned sour over the next few series. Um, I mean, if you could turn back the clock, would you would you have done anything differently, or would you would you talk to how would you what would you do now if Dominic was in the room right now? Would you speak to him candidly, or how would you talk to him now? Be fine. I think we'd be fine. I think probably he wouldn't particularly be bothered I think you know he's he I, I don't think possibly I, I can't say this for sure but I think for me Games Master was probably a bigger thing than it was for him because I think Dominic was always going to go on and do other things you know I think it was a stepping stone for him 
Whereas I was a professional gamer in love with gaming and you know producing a TV, me I'm being involved in a TV show about games. Yeah, was the ultimate for me. So that was for me. It was it was a major major thing. I saw it as my baby, and I was very protective over it. I think Dom really probably couldn't give two hoots about me realistically. But if we were in a room together, if we were putting a room together, I'm sure we just have a few drinks and have a laugh and just be grown up about it. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, it's um, you know, we we were both younger, we both had egos, and um, I guess it was always going to go bad one way or the other. I didn't expect what happened to happen, but you know, in a way, it's kind of nice it did. It's, it's kind of like the old better to burn out than fade away isn't it you know it's yeah. a moment no one will ever forget you know and I, I call it the day games tv died because after that christmas special they didn't make a decent games tv show ever again on any yeah. channel well i mean yeah i i talk about it now actually with mario 64 the challenge i mean it really is a game in folklore it, it's often in tv is the sort of maddest tv moments of all time i mean oh. It must have been very embarrassing for you at the time. Do you, looking back at it now, can you share your side of the story and how do you reflect back on it? I mean, you, you said earlier a bit of a stitch up. You, would you still agree with that? Oh God, yeah. Oh God, yeah. You've only got to, um, you know, without the things that went on behind the scenes that day, uh, where Dominic accused me of cheating on the, sh- trying to fix the show, yeah. uh, um, where I was, the only reason I did that show was because I was promised a neutral game in the final. And that was my one stipulation on that show. At that time, I was no longer a games journalist. I had worked, gone to work for THQ Limited, a company that did not produce next generation software at the time. They were starting to work on PlayStation. They did not work on N64. There was no N64s anywhere in the studios I worked in. Um, a couple of months before I joined THQ, I had announced in CTW, which was the Computer Trade Weekly, that I would never play Mario 64 on an N64 until it was officially released in this country. And the console was not due in this country until, I think, February after the Christmas edition. So I'd made it clear that I was not going to entertain this console, mainly because the public um, waiting for it. Um, was damaging the Christmas market. And that bothered me because I had friends in the industry mm. who were suffering bad pre-sales for Christmas because um, everybody was um, waiting for a machine that wasn't out yet. I think it was called the Ultra 64 back then. Um, so I had done all of that. But then forget all of that, but watch the show. Watch how many times Dominic's best friend is given points for incorrect answers. Mm. How- shirt he's wearing, which is uh, Viz, um, and um, have a look at what game they were developing. You can find their charter on the internet and find what game they were developing at the time we filmed that show. It was Earthworm Jim 3D they were working on. Right. And that's why he had a, that was why he had for the last three months been playing Mario 64 right. on an imported console because they were using it to research the 3D environments. He's got the t-shirt on with it on. It's basically <laughs> Last round, right? The last round, the, the quick fire round, um, where you think, oh, it's good. It's, this would be nice and neutral. You know, there's, there's, there's tens of thousands of questions you can ask about the games industry. Yeah. Why are the first two questions that come up both Earthworm Jim? Mm. It's all there. Mm. It's all, the fix is clear. It's clear that, that one contestant is being massaged into the final. 
And um, and when he gets to the final, he, it, when we turned up that day, um, he was the one in the green room showing everybody how to play Mario 64, that level on Mario 64, yeah. the slide or whatever it's called. Um, he was showing everybody how to play it. Now, how can that be right that one of the one of the finalists is good enough to be showing the other finalists how to play the game when it's supposed to be neutral? Yeah. All, all I asked for that day was a neutral game. I'd have beaten any of them on a neutral game. That was all I wanted was a neutral game. And it was clearly, it, it's, it's, it's as clear as a hand in front of your face um, that that's not what happened on the day. And, you know, it just, uh, I, when you watch it back through and you, you add up the, the points correctly, you, one question on there that, that goes to him is, um, what does he, pick games, things related to gaming, beginning with the letter P. Now, I don't know if that was a, a, a dig at me or not, but anyway, the last question is, what does the X button do on uh, FIFA? Mm. How'd you get the question wrong? Mm. If it's a P, you've only got four options. It's obviously pass, but if you don't know the answer, you say pass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know, and it's like, oh, we're just being funny. That's just comedy. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but also it's not really the point of uh, a quiz, is it? It was clear. It was clear. And I was sat there the whole time. I'd, I'd already tried to walk off the show because I'd been accused of trying to set the show up by Dominic um, yeah. before the show. I'd agreed to do the show purely because I was told that the, the one person that knew how to play the game would not get to the final. And if they did, there would be a neutral game would be brought in. And then when we got to the final... They refused to bring a neutral game in. They said they didn't have time because uh, we, we'd run over and the cameras and the lights were on overtime. And so they refused to honour what they said they'd honour. Yeah. So I sat down to play the game. I had never played it on, um, apart from probably just playing a demo at CES or something. I'd never played it on an import machine. I sat there in front of the audience to take my go. I didn't know what button did what. Yeah. Oh, we... No, Nintendo. What people forget is the Nintendo Joypad at the time was. <laughs> yeah. It had a it had a little analog thumbstick and things like that, and, and the trigger button underneath. Yeah. I didn't know relevance any any. Does the trigger button have a, have a relevance? Mm. The, am I using the buttons on the side? What about the shoulder buttons? I didn't know what any of it did. I'm on a I'm on a slide with inertia. Any game with inertia, as any gamer will know, it takes a few goes to learn just how far you're sliding one way or the other. Yeah, I had true. I had no idea how far I was sliding. I was trying to control it with an analog joystick, which is which they're always twitch, twitchy at the best of time. And I don't know if I've got any buttons that are going to break me or not, you know. <laughs> so, so I'm sat there, and um, you can see from the start of the footage, I'm jumping around like an idiot on the top of the thing because I can't work out how to even get down the slope. And um, it's just, uh, it was just so. By the time I got to Dominic, and he was in his element because he was he was, he was going to have a good time. He'd wait. I think he'd waited to have his moment. And um, he was his element. By the time I got there, you know, I was just, you watch my face. I'm not angry. I'm not upset so much. I'm just frustrated because yeah. the whole thing coming all the way through, I knew it was going to get to this. And now I knew I had to stand there and take all that shit mm -hmm. just so I could use the studio's car to get home. Otherwise, I was stranded. So I had to stand there and be humiliated Um but I wasn't going to just roll over. I wasn't just going to stand there and smile and go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, he did really well. Which, if I had done, it would all be forgotten about. It's, yeah, that's probably true, but, actually. But what I did was I told the truth. I stood there and I went, I feel I've been set up. 
Oh, yeah. but you're a games journalist. No, I'm a marketing manager. Mm. You know, these were all actual answers, but they sounded so churlish. <laughs> I mm. sounded <laughs> a bad loser. And I get that. And I know that. And I know people love that. But, you know, 20 years on, I still get trolled. You know, if yeah. I go to forum, you've only, you only get about five or six um, exchanges in before someone says, is he still shit, Mario 64? <laughs> it still, still comes up. It hasn't left me for 20 years. And to be honest, from a professional point of view, it probably damaged my career massively at that moment, you know, mm-hmm. massively. All just so some, some, you know, people could, could have some fun bullying me on the, on screen, you know? And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. People ask me about it. Like now, people ask me about it to this day. And then they go, Oh, well, he's still obviously still bitter about it. He can't let it go. And it's like, well, you know, people still ask oh, me about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I asked the question, Dave. It's not, you know, it's not like you, you just spoke about it. What am I supposed to do? You know, am I supposed to just um, not say anything now? You know, or do I just keep telling the truth? Because it's the truth. That's why I keep mm. saying it. You know, I'm, I'm not being bitter. That's what happened. I'm sorry I asked you the question in a way. <laughs> you must have been asked that question about 100 million times. Oh. I would always tell the truth. For me, what happened that day was disgusting. Yeah. And, and the people involved, I'm sure, would like me never to talk about it again because I think you know, it reflects worse on them than it does on me. And I think they'd rather it went away because they know what they did that day. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm not going to let them get away with it. Well, good on you, David. It's such a shame because, like you said earlier, Games Master was your baby. You were there from the beginning, day one. You helped make that show. And it almost, again, I don't want to have words in your mouth, but it almost seems like it stabbed you in the back and the, on the, the final kind of show for you. It's not, it's not really fair, is it? No, it, it did. And, and some people say, you know, oh, well, you know, ooh, you obviously didn't care about it that much because you made other shows after that. You know, it's not. No, they, the shows they showed after that, we'd already filmed them. They were filmed in advance. So oh, right, yeah. I did the, um, the Tetsujin show shortly afterwards where Dominic wasn't in that day. So I did the presenting. I presented the Tetsujin um, who came in and played on played with all the kids on Virtua Fighter. Hmm. You know, so, uh, once again, no presenter credits, but they were there. And um you know, and all of that. But I, um, for anybody who wants to know, um, you know, the effect of what happened that day and just what a, what a fucking bad move it was for the people involved, look at the viewing figures for the next season. Hmm. The only season of Games Master without me on it, see how it fared to the ones with me on it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it didn't bode well at all, did it? After you left, it, didn't, it went downhill, I think it's fair to say. Died, died. Games World then, Games World 4 came out. I left Games World 4 halfway through because a lot of the people from Get That Games Master were um, part of the reason was part of the, a lot of the crew from That Games Master 6 episode were involved in Games World 4. Right. So I actually fell out of love with that. I left that. That then bombed as well, you know. There wasn't... <laughs> this is the games animal talking, you know. So yeah. there, there was not a decent video game TV show left once I left, it was the day Games TV died. That For me, that, that show, that Christmas special, 1996, after that, Games TV just gradually got worse and worse. Mm. And I can't tell you why. I'm, I, I'm pretending it was me. It obviously wasn't me. But it really, it really to this day puzzles me that no one has made a good TV game show since. Why? Yeah. Yeah. When we made it, the biggest problem we had was we couldn't get TV executives to appreciate um, what we were doing because 
a lot of it is about advertising, particularly on Channel 4 um, at the time. And they couldn't work out what the demographic was they could sell the advertising to because, you know, who was playing these games? Kids, teenagers? Well, they, they haven't got any affordable income. You know, they haven't got any disposable income. So the adults weren't interested in it. Now, they're the people you want to hit because they've got disposable income. They've got credit cards and so forth. So it was a problem. But now that generation has grown up. Those kids that were, you know, guys like you that were watching that show back then, mm. they've now got good jobs. They've got bank accounts. They've got houses, cars, whatever. You know, the demographic is perfect now for selling into. Yeah. If you do a game show that captures the, their imagination, they're all, everybody's got two. You know, we all used to have, if we were lucky, one console. Now everybody's got two or three games yep. machines, their phones, their PDAs. You know, at home, the world is gaming, yeah. yet providing a gaming show. Yeah. We've got a million cooking shows, we've got a million gardening shows, bloody skating shows, whatever. <laughs> it's true. TV's yeah. gone through the roof. Everyone's bored of it now. Mm. What's the next big thing? Make a decent gaming show. The whole world's gaming. Uh, <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> yeah. It's quite out for it, isn't it? Um, um, oh. oh, Yeah. I mean, just briefly on Games World, I mean, I used to watch it. I used to have Sky One as a kid growing up, which was quite lucky because it wasn't quite as well known. Like, so Sky wasn't in loads of houses. Um, I mean, Games World, Bob Mills, uh, I think David Walliams was working on it as well for a little bit. What was the main difference between that show and Games Master? How would you reflect on the two quickly? Cool. Uh, Games World was um, a lot looser. Yeah. Because. Um, Games Master had to be a much tighter format because we had half an hour to fit it into um, once a week, 12 shows I think it was for the first season, 12 or 11 shows, and um, you had to it had to be form. you had to go right how do we do it, okay, we'll do review, review challenge, review, feature, challenge you know, and, and everything had to come in an order that people people like, lots of little small things um, whereas Games World was Obviously, one of the first shows that was five nights a week. Yeah. Uh, back before, I don't think Big Brother was doing it back then. I don't think Big Brother existed back then, you know, back when Big Brother first came out and it was on 24-7. Um, Games World was on five nights a week and no one had done it before. And when you've got five nights a week, you've got to fill those slots. Yeah. And so, so it could be a lot looser, a lot more expansive. You can try a lot more things. And um, Sky as well were, I think, you know, just a lot more... Um, experimental and a lot more willing. You could be a bit more crazy. Do you know what I mean? And um, you know, we, we were we were able to do you know, quite quite nuts things. And um, games were because it kind of was really at times quite amateurish looking. You know, yeah. but it would it worked. You know, the crazy amateurishness of it worked. You know, and and people were able to try out new things. There was like the videators, um, and then there was um, home gaming where you're playing video games using your, the keyboard on your yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> things like that. You know, there was um, um, Big Boy Barry's joypad in the end where um, Big Boy Barry of the videators, Alex Berry, he started, um, he, he got his own his own evening show, and that was when David Walliams got brought in. And, mm. you know, it was, um, it was, people were able to try things and, and, and take, take a chance. I just, uh, it was a lot more fun. I enjoyed going and doing games world, you know, and hanging out with the crew. And, you know, we'd be in these big warehouses that were all done up like cyberpunk churches. And uh, we'd hang out. And, yeah, it was just, it was great fun. Live audiences. Uh, I love a live audience. Yeah. You know, when you have a live audience, 
it's brilliant because you feed off their energy. You know, if, you, if something's happening in the game, if you can build it up, if you can get excited, if you can really get inside their head and, oh, my God, look at this energy bar, look at this energy bar. You know, and, and the audience all sort of go there and you, you just feel them suddenly start buzzing and, and the whole thing gets an energy that you, you, you don't get so much off recorded shows. And, uh, yeah, I think Games World was just looser and it was, it was just more fun. And maybe as well, and I, I don't want this to sound cruel, but maybe as well, this is because it was because it wasn't just centered around one person. Yeah. Games came centered around one person in the end, um, which kind of takes a lot of the fun out of it for everyone else involved. Whereas Games World had so many different characters. You know, there was me, there was Jeremy, there was Bob Mills was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You had involved. You had all the cyberpunks on the set. You had Tim Boone as well was on there. Um, you had lots of different people involved. And so it just felt more like... You all were a part of it. You all had a say in what was going on, and you all could influence what was happening. Whereas Games Master, it kind of just felt like it was one person's show, yeah. and it mean and did your bit and went, which wasn't as much fun. Can't be as much fun. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of Bob Mills, and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show, but In Bed with Me at Dinner was a, <laughs> a great show. I love watching growing up as well. What, what was he like as a presenter uh, and a person? And I don't. I don't get the impression he's much of a gamer, but was he a gamer himself? No, Bob Mills. Bob Mills. I don't know how he is now, um, but at the time, had no respect for games or gaming. <laughs> didn't really like gamers. Didn't really like games at all. Wow. Um, and uh, he was just uh, as he is exactly as you'd expect him to be. Yeah. He's like larger than life, a little bit intimidating. And um, quite laid laid back, you know what I mean. And he he's got that sort of drawl about him, yeah. uh, you know. And he's quite laconic, and you know, and he's sharp. You you don't you don't have a go at him because um, he he will come back at you so quickly, and so you know, so so horribly as well. You know, we'd be on stage, and some I think that that was part of the. Part of the revolutionary shock factor of Games World, if you like, people who watched it for the first time, was just how mean he was to kids. Yeah. Cruel to them. But it worked because, you see, the way we looked at it, kids of the age group we were getting on Games World, which is around 14, 13, 15, that sort of thing, they're used to being talked to like that. You know, mm. the playground is a very, very tough place. Mm. Teachers can be quite tough on the kids because they have to keep control of the room. Mm. Yeah. You know, Kids are quite harsh to each other. And Bob Mills just talked to them like he was in the playground with them. He was just <laughs> yeah. like, well, well, yeah, that, that, that's, that's all very well. But really, you were just rubbish, weren't you? Now go and cry in the changing room. You know, <laughs> pick them off stage. Like, you know, these kids were just like, broken and horrified. But, you know, that was, that was his way. And um, he was just really, really funny. And he was very, very sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was quite a few times I, I, he had his own changing room and he let, let me sit in his changing room with him just so I could have a break from everybody. And I'd sit in there with him and go through my scripts and that and he'd sit in and I'd chat with him. Uh, you know, he was, he was fascinating, very intelligent mm. and very, very funny, but quite hard to get to know. You, you get the feeling that he's probably got his own circle of people that he likes to be around, and, but, but he chooses who, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. He's a great man. Definitely the funniest man I ever worked with. Good stuff. Um, really quickly, you, you must have met loads of celebrities in your time, Games Master, in Games World. Who, which, which celebrity did you most get on with and um, which celebrity drummer was the best at video games? 
best at video games is a good question. Um, oh, then, now that's a tough one. No one's asked me that one before. Oh, really? I got. Um, we must have had some before. We did have some that were very, very serious about them. I can't think on my hand. I mean, the one I got on with best was Frank Bruno. Oh, nice. Boxer, he was a great guy. He came on the show a few times. And um, when he came on season three, um, I was sat in the green room with him. And I think he had his wife at the time with him. And we were discussing dogs. He was having problems with some of his dogs that he had at home. And, um, you know, it was just, it was a very frank, not for punning. Um, <laughs> no, it, was, um, it, it was just a very honest conversation, you know, just, just about his home life and his house and his dogs and his chatting. And he recognized me. He said, I recognize you. You know, he said, oh, you, you know, we've done the show before, haven't we? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then we just sat there and uh, we just chatted. And he was just a really nice guy. Um, take that, we're all really nice. You know, mm. Robbie was fun. Um, it, I remember that. I remember taking the piss out of them on Games Master. We, um, I'm terrible. My judgment of future stars has been proven to be awful, and uh, we 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 had to get some stars in on the show on season two. And um, a, a guest had left left us down, let us down, and they came up to me and said, "Which one should we get in? We, we can get the Pasadenas, or we can get a boy band called Take That." Oh wow! And I said, uh, "I said get the Pasadenas." <laughs> They were, they were like number four in the charts or something at the time. I'd never even heard of Take That. We don't want a boy band in the show. Anyway, they went away and they got boy band. I don't know whether they ignored me um, or the Pasadena's were busy. I don't know. So anyway, income, in, income, boy band. Uh, uh, um, but about an hour or so before Take That showed up, a ton of young girls. Now, Games Master didn't get a lot of girls. It was very much a boys thing. Yeah. So suddenly we had all these young girls. The outfits start turning up. We're like, well, what's this all about? And then take that turn up. And these girls are losing their shit. Wow. And five young guys come in and they're incredibly good looking, you know, but very, very polite, really nice guys. Robbie stood there the whole time. If I remember rightly, in some blue dungarees and one of the girls has given him a baby's dummy and he's sucking on this baby's <laughs> dummy, waving it at her. Um, because I think that was like a, uh, like an acid house thing at the time or something. But, um, he was, yeah. And they were just really nice guys. And I was, they were nice, and I was nice to them, but I was slightly irritated that they'd not gone with my choice in Pasadena, because I didn't know who these guys were. Mm. So anyway, uh, they're playing Bomberman, if I remember rightly, and uh, they're having a few practice runs, and we're doing a run through, and I'm doing a commentary, and um, boom, 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 the bombs go up, like, oh, there you go, boys, you better get used to things blowing up in your face, <laughs> meaning the career, you know? Yeah. You know? Industry, you better get used to things blowing up in your face. And Jane Hewlett, who owned the company at the time, was was up in the up in the um, director's box, and she said, "Use that. Make sure you say that to them." And I felt so cruel saying it to them, <laughs> yeah. but I did. But yeah. I truly believe it wasn't going to be anything, you know. It's like just some boy band, you know. They'll be gone and be gone in a couple of months. And of course, they went on to become like the biggest thing on the planet. And I was like, okay then. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> just shows, isn't it? Um, Dave, if Channel 4 rang you up tomorrow and they said, we want to bring back Games Master, we're going to revive it, and they want to bring back most of the old crew, yourself included, would you be tempted? Yes. Absolutely. Over the years, the last few years, I've had, I've had a number of phone calls and emails off, off people um, from some very major companies, yeah. uh, one of the biggest production companies in the country, which got me very excited because I thought, well, they could possibly do it. Um, but these things tend to... They, they, they always seem to go so far and then uh, and then they hit a wall and then they just stop and someone because 
even after all these years, commissioning editors don't seem to get the games industry. Mm. Yeah, and I think they were frightened that it was a flash in the pan. Then they were frightened there was no advertising revenue. Now they're frightened that, that it can't compete with the internet because mm. the internet is putting all the news and features on there so quickly. How can a TV show ever compete with it? So it always just falters. But the last few times I've been asked, I've always said, yes, I'll do it. I would do it. Mm. Uh, if it was, you know, if I felt it was the right show, mm. um, I, I'd be behind it because Games Master was my baby. I still feel it was my baby. I'm still extremely proud of what we did. Mm. I'm still extremely proud of the standard we set for the, for, for shows um, to follow, which I still don't think has been beaten to this day. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, if if somebody was serious about bringing it back and doing it properly, and they seriously wouldn't be involved, of course I would. Not a problem. <laughs> Yeah, we can only we can only dream, I guess. Um, but kind of linked to that, I'm really interested about your. I think it's your current kind of project you're on, the Games Animal TV. Can you just explain what it's all about to our listeners and what what they can expect to see in the near future? Well, here we go. Basically, what happened was um, two years ago. Um, I'm happily tattooing because that's what I do now. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, over the years. Tons of people have come to me asking me to do things, you know. Um, and, and recently, there's been a real spate of retro conventions and things mm. like that. And people want me to go along and um, meet people and have my photo taken and do challenges and things like this. And I've always said, no, because I'm done with the games industry. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. And then a guy called Craig Turner, who runs the um, retro revival events um, in Warsaw, came to me. And uh, he said, will I be interested in going along to his event? And, mm. To talk, they have talks where the audience asks the panel anything they want to ask about retro gaming. So I, I don't really do that kind of thing anymore. Anyway, um, I saw on his, his website he, he refurbs old arcade machines and things like this, and builds you builds cabinets. And he'd done a, a Killer Instinct machine. He'd done a he'd done a really good job on it. And I, I just ticked it. And said, yeah, brilliant. You know, that's a really good job on me. You know and. Tons of responses, you know. Oh my God, Dave Perry, Dave Perry, Game Animal, you know. Blah, blah, blah. So, so anyway, Craig comes to me again, and he says, "Look, do revival. Come up and do revival 2017, and um, I will find you a Mortal Kombat 2 cabinet." Because he knew that was always been dream to have my own Mortal Kombat 2 cabinet. He said, "Then uh, if I can't find you one, I'll build you one." Nice. So, uh, right. Okay. Deal. Done. So, um, so I did revival. I went up there. I did talk on the panel. And like I had such a great day. I enjoyed being with the gamers and talking about old times so much that um, in the afternoon they had a Street Fighter contest on the main stage in the main room. So I just got up on the stage. I had a bandana with me. I put my bandana on, walked out to the front of the stage. Crowd loved it. Present, got a microphone, presented the, the challenge just like Games Master would have been. And um, it went down really well. So they said to so Craig then came to me after the event and said, do you want to do it again next year? I said, no, no, I don't want to be... I don't want to be Alan Partridge. I don't want to be this guy that's just trying to live on past glory. Yeah. And um, he said, well, all the guys have always wanted, always wanted to be on Games Master. They've always wanted to do their own video games TV show. Um, would you do that with them? Would you be a, be a present, be present the show and we'll put a get together a games TV show um, and all the guys will do their own bits and then we'll edit it all together with you as the main presenter and then we'll put it on the internet. And I'm like, what, on YouTube? And he's like, yeah, I'm like, that shit. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah, YouTube, bollocks, that's for kids, you know. I'm not doing that. And anyway, 
I went to Madame Tussauds. Um, I was going to see Prodigy, and I had my daughter with me and my wife, and we went to Madame Tussauds. And we're going around, I'm standing with Jennifer Lawrence and Bruce Willis, having a picture taken, as you do. And then, as we went around the corner, there's two kids sat on a bed. I said to my daughter, I said, well, what's this all about then? Why have we got two kids sat on a bed? She said, that's so-and-so and so-and-so. They got a YouTube show with 10 million viewers and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> a year or something. And I'm like, what? And then I looked into it, and people started telling me about how that much money people make. And not that I'm about money, but I was amazed. The money kind of like... That was a sign of how big it was, you know. Mm. So, and then, um, and then, uh, you know, like, people start telling me things like, you know, de- show me various graphics, you know, demographics that kids don't watch TV much anymore. They all watch YouTube. They all watch channels. They're all subscribing on their phones and that. And I suddenly realised that this was the whole thing that passed me by. Mm. And so I agreed to do the show. So on t- 2018, um, I did some filming um, in my own little area down in Torquay. And then I went up to Revival 2018 and filmed some live stuff up there. Nice. And, um, and now those guys are editing it all together to make like an hour-long show called Games Animal TV, which would just be a one-off uh, retro gaming show. But in the meantime, um, I'm going to do my own pieces um, uh, from my own little studio. And um, I've been learning how to use the editing software in there. And um, I've uh, been to a recording studio and I've written original music with a, with a band for the start and the end of the show. And we've made a video for the end of the show. It's quite funny. And um, we've got title credits and things. And it's all there waiting to be put together. The only yeah. thing that's back is me. I never seem to find the time. I'm so busy. I never find the time to actually sit down and talk to camera. And um, the idea is initially it's just going to be, uh, you know, like a high, you know, what do you want to do sort of thing, a little bit of retro talk. Um, but what I would like it to be is the way I visualize it going is I want to be a conduit. So people who want to be part of a video games TV channel, like Games Animal TV, um, and, and have the facilities to do their own, and maybe they do their own little bits of blogging or YouTubing or whatever. I want to make their own little snippets, their own little four or five minute shows, you know, and send them to me. I'll put them into Games Animal TV. I'll present them and um, link them between and everything. And, and then regularly, maybe, you know, once a month or whatever, we'll put out an episode of Games Animal TV full of various gamers' own clicks, clips and blog, blogs all together, held together by me presenting and chatting, chatting through it and make it like an interactive, um, you know, retro gaming channel um, presented by somebody who was actually there. Yeah. Uh, giving everybody a chance for what they're doing to reach a slightly higher profile than they might do anyway because of my name. Do you know what I mean? Because if, yeah. if I can use my name um, and my standing in the community to, to get more people to view their enthusiasm and their passion and what they're making, and then people might go to their channels as well then, mm-hmm. um, that's the plan really. It's, uh, it, otherwise, I don't know what else to do if I'm honest. You know, people, people have got me into this now. <laughs> and they're saying like, what's your content going to be? What are you going to do? What's going to be on your show? I don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah. This, you know, I'm the games animal. You know, I'll sit there and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll sit there and I'll present and I'll hold it together and I'll do do some funny stuff and I'll talk to people and I'll I'll do retro stuff. Yeah. But I don't, content and it's really weird because the strange thing for me is um, I watch some of these shows. Obviously, by way of research, I've gone and watched some of the shows that people are doing on retro games. Yeah. And 
are really enthusiastic about these retro machines and retro gaming and, and playing this level and playing that level. Oh, and I'm playing Wipeout today and I'm playing Manic Miner tomorrow and we're going to play Elite next Thursday and we're doing this and we're doing that. I can't get enthusiastic that way because I was there. Yeah. I feel like I'm talking about something I've already done, whereas these <laughs> yeah. people are enthusiastic about a scene that they're still discovering because they weren't there. You know, they're just uncovering it now. Yeah. They've decided they're into the retro scene, whereas I kind of was the retro scene. So it's very hard for me to get excited about, you know, a game that I've played a million times back in the day. You know, how do you get excited about it all over again? I just enjoy it. Yeah. You know? So what I want to do is kind of be be excited and enthusiastic about being retro, if you like, and about what other people are doing. Yeah. Like um, yeah. That kind of thing, really. So what I've got to do is is when the school holidays are over, um, I've got a bit more time, is go back down to, uh, is go down to the studio, film some stuff, put it online, and see what the reaction is, and, and I'll just let the whole thing grow organically. If people want to be involved, they will. If they don't, I'll probably get bored after three or four episodes and stop doing it, but I, but I certainly don't want to be an Alan Partridge type and, and kind of, you know, you know what I mean. You yeah, know, yeah. Like Norwich Radio, you know, I don't want to be doing that. Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Radio, if it exists. How? What's the best way of getting involved in it? Obviously, it's a YouTube channel. So, is it Games Animal TV? It's quite easy to find, I bet. It's on there. It's on Games. Yeah, it's on YouTube, and it's called Games Animal TV. So yeah. it's easy to um, go there and subscribe. Um, if you want to be involved in it in some way, um, get in touch with me through there, or or find my Facebook page, you know, Dave Perry. Yeah. I'm at. Yeah, get involved with me through my Facebook page or my Instagram page um, and introduce yourself, tell me what you do, show me, give me some links to where you are, whatever, and we'll do our best to, to get you involved. It's, it's a that. simple... No, I really like Dave. I really like the community spirit behind it. I think that's quite original. I think uh, I really wish it could luck. I, I can't wait to see it, actually. You haven't got that sort of date in mind, then? I haven't, no. No, it's, it's because... We filmed a big long one, like an hour, an hour's worth of various mm-hmm. segments, etc. Um, which the guys up in Birmingham now are editing together. But they've all got regular jobs as well, so they're doing it between that. Yeah. So, it have it, it really should have come out this this May March, and it didn't. Um, so now it's kind of like as and when it's a labour of love. And then when I get a chance, probably in the next month or so, I'll put my I'll put a smaller five ten together. And put it on there as the first show, and then hopefully people will share it and yeah, tell yeah. people, and and then hopefully we can breathe some life into it and and move it along, and people get a feeling for the kind of vibe I'm trying to get over with it, and um, and hopefully we can all just just have some fun. Love that. I mean, that's half. That's the whole point, isn't it? Have some fun, see what happens, and I really can't wait to see it. Honestly, it sounds really interesting. Stuff. Uh, um, Right, um, Dave, I've got a few last-minute quick-fire questions. You know, is that all right? Then we'll finish up because I know you're a busy man. Um, what is your favourite video game of all time? I know you mentioned a few Amiga ones, but is there a particular game on any console you think, that's my all-time favourite? All-time favourite game? Um, all-time favourite game is Player Manager on the Amiga. Yep. Definitely. Off series. Um, second place would be Wipeout on the PlayStation 1. Yeah. Definitely. Third place would be Space Hulk on the 3DO. Ooh. Uh, amazing game. Anybody that hasn't played Space Hulk on the 3DO should play it. It is a uniquely atmospheric experience. Um, I kept a 3DO for years just to play the one game. Nice. 
<laughs> nice. And, and then I think it would probably be um, Street Fighter. Street Fighter 2. Street Fighter 2, yeah. The classic. I, I'd like to be super technic, techie and say Street Fighter 2 Alpha, XZY or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they all do the same job. Some are faster than others and things like that. But the original Street Fighter arcade machine. Amazing. Absolutely brilliant. The purest fighting game there is because once Killer Instinct and these other games got involved, and you had to remember long streams of um, long chains of um, button combinations and things like that. Somehow it took the player out of the game mm. because whilst standing there getting hammered and you, you can't do anything about it, that's not playing a game. Street Fighter, the hits were quick, yeah. they were fat, and, um, and, and, and they were limited. And because they were limited, it was more about your personal strategy and your personal nerve mm. and you're still to be able to pull off that move in the split second. And so it was a purer game. It was more about the gamer than it was the game. As soon as you start putting too much game into a game and you take the gamer out of the game, you lose the game. Yeah, I see I what you're saying. I agree with that completely. What's your favourite console of all time? Not computer, but console. PS1. Yep, that's brilliant. That's a great answer. Um, do you remember which game did you give the best ever rating for uh, a number? Was, was there a particular game you thought you've given the highest score ever? I can't remember. I couldn't tell you that. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, there have been a lot of ratings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, how about the worst game that you've ever played? Is there one that sticks in your memory going, this is almost unplayable, I, I hate it kind of attitude? Oh. Tough, bit of a mean question. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I, I, I can't think there must have been I must have been but so many games you, you just forget those games fair enough no you mean you played so many I mean I, who, I bet you haven't even thought about how many games you've played in your lifetime it must be thousands that yeah. is an interesting question yeah it must be thousands because the thing is when you're reviewing them for magazines and that of course you play a lot of games that you'll never play again yeah. in your life you know because the low scoring games the games that you know like you were just asking about you know you get given those games you, you give them like one or two days gameplay and you hate everything about them. Yeah. A low score because they're almost unplayable or they don't work or, or, you know, or you can't get past the level, the level because, you know, it just doesn't work the way it's supposed to work or whatever. Um, and once you've, once you've actually finished doing what you're being paid to do, you just, you, you just put it to one side and yeah. you never touch it again. Cause why would you? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, you, exactly. You remember the games you play over and over again. Good answer. NHL 93 on Mega Drive. That's a great game. Which one's that, sorry? NHL 93. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I know. Uh, with, yeah. With Sega Arcade Power Stick. Now, that that, that was a lovely joystick. And, you know, <laughs> playing as the, the, the Detroit Pistons, that was wonderful, wonderful game. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you ever get the opportunity to finally complete Mario 64? And have your views on that game changed over time? Do you look back now in different memories? Mario 64, I have never touched it since that day. Oh, wow. I'm not a big Nintendo fan. Like I said, I came from an era where you pick sides. Mm. And I was always Sega. Cause yeah. I, I came through on Mega Power, Sega Pro, um, things like that. And then after the Segas, um, I moved to PlayStation. Mm. Um, and so, so I never really went to the Nintendo side. I, I played SNES. Um, a lot more because of um, Games World, because that was a multi-format magazine around that time. And SNES obviously had some incredible games that you just couldn't get on any yeah. other format. So you kind of had to play SNES 
Um, and for a while, it was anyway to play Street Fighter at home as well. Mm. So, um, you know, you had to play SNES. Um, but I've never been a big Nintendo fan. Oh, and um, I certainly don't like cutesy games. I, I don't like Zelda. I don't like Mario. I don't like any game that involves um, a, a cute little character with a head that's way too big for its body, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I didn't like that. That, that was an, yeah, that's another reason. You know, the, the only times I've ever really been beaten has been when people have put me on Nintendo. And that's been my Achilles heel, oh, you right. know, from my, most of my playing career. Um, what I'm going to do, though, is uh, for Games Animal TV, when we get it up and running, I will do a Mario 64 Ooh. special. <laughs> I'm um, a Mario 64 yeah. fan wants to, wants to convince me that Mario 64 is a great game. So I will sit down and for the first time, <laughs> I will play it through properly and, tr- and he'll try and convince me. And we will play the Slippery Slippery oh, Slope. I can't wait to see that. <laughs> <laughs> for a gritted teeth, maybe, Dave, but you do it. Good on you. Yeah. Yeah, um, you obviously you still do. You're a tattooist, aren't you? By trade, you, you still do that today, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. I've got my own studio in Torquay. Yeah, nice one. What's it called? Out of interest, Revolver. Revolver. Okay. Um, have you ever in your tattoo career ever inked a game related tattoo? I get them from time to time. But I try to avoid them. If I'm honest. A lot of people have said to me, you know, you're mad. You should do game related tattoos. Yeah. You people would come to you for game related tattoos. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I just don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a guy called Bill Thorpe, who is a vlogger on YouTube, um, he came all the way down and did an interview with me. That's on YouTube somewhere. And um, he did it's a nice interview. He's a great guy. And I did a P-Wing on him and mm. do games. Um, I had another guy come in to me around Halloween a while back, and I did a Silent Hill zombie nurse on him. Oh, nice. and so if if it's the right kind of tattoo, if it's, if it's nice and dark and a little bit gory, yeah. then I might. But I don't want to spend the rest of my life sitting down tattooing Star Fox on people. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, just, just, I get bored very quickly. Fair enough. Um, have you ever been tempted? This is a question from uh, one of our other people on Rocket Attack called Rob. He, he wants to know, have you ever tried or been tempted to get a UK version of Ink Master off the ground? Because, you, you know, you're a well-known celebrity... You've, I suppose you've got contact. Would that be something you're tempted to do? Well, the thing is, I have... Um, they did do a um, great greatest tattooer or something show in Britain. It, it was awful. Hmm. Um, they tried something. I do have a format for a um, tattoo show, um, ironed out, ready to go. Oh, wow. It, it wouldn't be like Ink Master, but it would be a good tattoo show because one of the things that pisses me off with tattoo shows at the moment is that they're, they're all ink masters exception, but they're generally always taking the piss out of people with tattoos. You know, mm. it's all tattoo shows about getting a silly tattoo yeah, or someone yeah, yeah. who got now needs it covered up. And so I'd like to do a show that's more positive and more, you know, more about the positive side of tattoo, the tattoo industry, like Miami Ink was in the early days, mm. but not the same sort of show at all, not in an in the studio show, but I have um, a very unique wow. idea pilot for a show um ready to go um but i don't have any contacts these days um i need contacts uh it, you know I, i've got a good few tv shows in my head and one day hopefully i'll i'll run into somebody and i'll be able to uh to lay them out for them but definitely a good tattoo show i do have ready to go well, nice one dave i hope i hope it's, it gets developed one day it'll be very interesting um <laughs> penultimate question how many uh, balaclavas do you own and do you have a personal favorite balaclava that's really funny. Why would I own a balaclava? <laughs> you mean a bandana? I mean a bandana. I've written balaclava here in my nose. Sorry, I'm talking rubbish now. <laughs> Sorry. 
Yeah, bandanas. Sorry, Dave. Like, yeah, um, Hammond Glenn, I am, um, once again, when we moved house three or so years ago and I cleared out all my stuff, um, I gave a load away to fans of the show and that who wrote to me. I, just, I sent them bandanas mm. um, um, from the show. So now probably I only have, I'd imagine about 15 bandanas now. Right, yeah, yeah. That's all. I, I kept, I kept the key ones. Um, the one I wore on the Christmas special, that's with, um, a friend of mine who's a fan of the show. Um, my American one I wore for years, I still have. Um, and I bought a load of new Union Jack ones for, um, Games Animal TV and for live appearances at Revival because I, I, I just felt wrong wearing an American flag all the time. Mm. It's like, well, I should get a Union Jack, you know? So, um, so I have about 15 now. Good stuff. And zero balaclavas. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, final question, because you know, I really appreciate the time. Uh, if you could share a few drinks with any video game character, who would you choose and why? Lara Croft, obvious. <laughs> That's been a very popular answer when I've asked other people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Look, Dave, that was excellent. I really appreciate your time today. So thank you. Thank you so much. Brilliant. No worries at all. I hope you get some good stuff out of that. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK, at Keith Barlow82, and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon. Game over, yeah!